Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, sports washing the World Cup. But whose reputation is being protected? The Men's Football World Cup is about to kick off in Qatar, which has been widely condemned for its treatment of migrant workers and LGBT people. But before we get too high and mighty over how a Middle Eastern oil state deals with human rights, listen up to David Waring, who has got an important story to share about how we in the West help create the state of Qatar and how we help to sustain it. David is an expert in UK Gulf relations and the author of Anglo-Arabia, Why Gulf Wealth Matters to Britain. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content you can't read anywhere else. There's no millionaire backer behind us, no big media corporation. So we rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, independent journalism. You get more details about how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions, by the way, start from as little as £3 a month. So go on, live a little and take out a subscription if you can. And thank you to everybody who has already done so. More details about how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to David. Uh, And David, before we start this examination of Qatar and sports washing, let's be clear, there is no justification for the way in which Qatar treats its migrant workers, nor indeed for the way in which it discriminates against LGBT people. No, that's right. And in fact, what we're trying to do, I think, is understand precisely how and why that abuse happens and the responsibility on Qatar, but with the responsibility not just with Qatar, with Qatar's Western backers and enablers. So understanding this abuse properly rather than trying to deflect criticism of it. And I suppose this then starts with the creation of Qatar and what we refer to as the Gulf states, very much the creation of Western powers, including the UK. Yeah, at least the modern manifestation of these states is in large part a creation of Western power. I wouldn't go so far as to say there was a blank slate in the Gulf and then the British came along and created these regimes out of thin air. But the British were there from the early part of the 19th century right up until their departure in 1971. And that is the period in which the modern Gulf states, I'm talking here about Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the UAE, and Amman, in which those states in their modern form were created. So there's this whole process of state formation that goes on in that period. Um, The creation of the modern state apparatus, the creation of their militaries and police and security apparatus, creation of their modern economies as countries whose economies are defined by their dependence on oil and gas income. I mean, all of that develops under British tutelage, under the quote-unquote protection of the British Empire. And since 1971, where the British granted those states formal independence, the West has still been heavily involved. In the immediate aftermath, you had British officials deeply situated in all of these states, in the leading ministries, in the military apparatus, taking senior roles as quote-unquote advisors to shape the continuing sort of development and direction of those states to ensure that the regimes and monarchies survived against any domestic challenges from people who wanted democracy or sort of genuine independence. And we can take that all the way up to the present day where these 
still pretty small regimes, rich, but small. All, all the military power they have, all the coercive power they have to repress their populations is derived from the British and the Americans and the French, who are the ones who sell all the weapons and train their security forces. And obviously the British and the Americans and the French project their own military power into the region, a major purpose of which is to ensure that the conservative regional order, the status quo, remains intact. So while it's too much to say that the West and the British created these regimes out of thin air, it Western powers were the midwife to the birth of the modern Qatari state, as well as Kuwait, Bahrain, UAE, and Oman as well. So when did the British and the West first get involved in Qatar and these Gulf states? Why did they stay there, and why did they eventually grant them their independence? So it's the British that first go in, and this is in the early part of the 19th century, the early 1800s. And the reason the British first went into the Persian Gulf in that period, this is before the discovery of oil in the region, and before oil becomes the lifeblood of the world economy that it is now. At that point, it's something different. The British want to protect their Indian empire. India is, famous phrase, is the jewel in the crown. India was the most valuable part of the British empire at that time. And what the British wanted to do was protect their rule in India from Russian Empire to the north and from the French as well. And so they tried to protect their rule in India by creating a kind of buffer zone, including places like Persia, what's now Iran, Afghanistan, and the Persian Gulf as well. So by sort of projecting British military power into those regions, they could create a buffer zone around their Indian Empire. So that's when they start turning these little statelets, Bahrain, Kuwait, Qatar, etc., into protectorates. So they weren't formally colonised, but they effectively became sort of client states of the British. And when do they discover oil, and how significant is that then in the development of these states? Oil was discovered in the Gulf around the turn of the 19th, 20th century. And as you go on into the early 20th century, it really becomes clear that the Gulf is going to become the energy heartlands of the planet, the energy heartlands of industrialised capitalism. I mean, now about 40, 45% of the world's proven oil reserves can be found just around the Persian Gulf. And that picture is becoming clear in the early 20th century. So British are already there. But the geopolitical, geostrategic and economic significance of that area suddenly takes on a whole new dimension. And so the, the British will redouble their efforts to strengthen these regimes. They're particularly worried about local anti-colonial nationalists, pressure from below, people wanting to topple these regimes, turn the countries into republics and take them off into an independent direction. The British worked really hard through the early, mid-20th century to build these regimes up so that they can resist those kind of pressures. And it's in that period where the oil money's coming in and the British really understand the value of these regimes given where they are. The period of, of state formation takes shape. And then, of course, after World War II, you've got the Americans coming into the Middle East, developing their relationship with Saudi Arabia. You've got British power declining as American power rises. And then after the British grant these states formal independence, the French have the room to sort of come in as well. So now you have British, American and French presence in the region. But fundamentally, you've got Western domination of the Gulf for the past 
200 years. You asked me about independence and why the British granted these states independence. This is an interesting story. Many of these states didn't want independence, at least the monarchies didn't want independence. Many of the people did, but many of the monarchies didn't because they worried about who's going to protect them. I mean, in the end, the British presence continued substantively, and the Americans and the French came in as well. But they were worried at the time, really worried. And the reason the British left is because Britain's capability of maintaining an empire was shrinking massively. Think about that post-World War II period where Britain went through a series of economic crises. It was after the major currency crisis in 1967 that the Labour government basically said, we can't afford to do this anymore. We can't afford to project British military power east of the Suez Canal. So this is the famous sort of shift in British foreign policy in 1971, a withdrawal from east of Suez, withdrawal from major bases in places like Singapore and also in the Gulf. So it didn't come as a result of the monarchies demanding independence. It came as a result of the British being too weak to maintain their empire. But these states then, as you describe it, have been built up with the support of Britain and the structures of the society have been sustained by Britain. And in the years since independence, Britain, the United States and France have ensured that these monarchies have maintained their power through the supply of arms. And on that account of it, the West has taken a kind of amoral stance. They haven't been interested in whether these societies have been particularly tolerant, whether they've been particularly progressive. From the West point of view, it's all been about preserving stability to ensure the supply of oil. Yeah, and supply of oil to the world market, because, I mean, the British haven't imported much Middle Eastern oil for quite a while, but they're supplying oil to the world market to keep the global economy stable so that, you know, profit making can continue in a stable way. Another really important aspect is the wealth that's generated by the sale of oil and gas, in which these Gulf regimes, when the oil and gas prices are high, make an extraordinary amount of money, huge sovereign wealth. And the British and the Americans and the French are pretty keen to ensure that that, we call it petrodollars in academia, these um, this oil and gas wealth. They're pretty keen to ensure that these petrodollars make it into their economies. And your listeners can no doubt think of any number of examples of golf investment in Britain, things like by Manchester City Football Club, the Shah, Harrods, these kind of things, property. But there's loads of investment that you don't see shares in major corporations where they'll take a small shareholder so they're not involved in the running of the corporation but the money's in their bank deposits as well the property portfolios go well beyond the big mansions in kensington and go down to even normal residential properties around the country so loads of money pours into the british economy from the gulf and also the gulf is a source for britain of a trade surplus britain has been running a trade deficit for a long long time but it has a precious trade surplus with the Gulf states, partly because they're so wealthy, they can afford so many British imports. And another really important thing is that they buy so many British arms, including big weapon systems like fleets of fighter jets. And that helps Britain to maintain its own arms industry. Your listeners may or may not want this, but the government certainly does. If you want Britain to continue to be a global military power, and to maintain as much as it can of its status in the world system, even after the fall of empire, then you need to be an independent military power. And to be an independent military power, you have to have your own arms industry. You can't be reliant on other people for your arms. 
And to maintain an arms industry without taxing the population to the point where they start asking questions, you need people to sell your excess arms too. That's how British arms industry maintains itself through exports. And the Gulf is the most lucrative arms export market in the world. So by maintaining good relations with those regimes and selling them arms, the British arms industry specifically gets this huge income. And that helps Britain, not just economically, but strategically to maintain its status as a military power in the world. So there's all these complex ways in which Gulf wealth and the Gulf states are important to Britain. And if those regimes were to fall in any way and be replaced by democracies, republics, whatever their nature, there'd be the risk that those regimes might want a different relationship with the West for ideological reasons or self-interest or whatever you'd want to call it. Britain, America and France have not wanted to risk that. And so they've maintained those regimes in power and been fundamentally indifferent, as you say, amoral when it comes to the human rights abuses in those countries, which we really need to understand as human rights abuses that are carried out by those regimes in which British, American and French power are implicated. In. So when commentators contrast, if you like, liberal, progressive Western values with the authoritarianism, the conservatism, the traditionalism of Qatar and the other Gulf states, as if complete opposite poles, that's just not true because the authoritarianism, the conservatism, for want of a better word, is something which we as progressive liberal Westerners through our governments have done so much to prop up over decades and continue to do so today. This is really important, I think, to kind of stress and elaborate on. British news coverage and the general discourse around international relations, there's this constant assumption of this thing called Western values, liberal progressive Western values. The West is characterized by its values. When we talk about the war in Ukraine, about the threat to the rules-based international order, the liberal order of the world system. And frequently when we talk about the Gulf regimes, we talk about oppression that goes on in those countries. It's regrettable, but you know it's rooted in their traditions and their culture, and that's where it comes from. So you have this juxtaposition between a liberal progressive West and a backward, despotic, conservative Middle East. And this is just straightforward racism, which is not to say the opposite is true and it's us that's despotic. It's to say that the world is not so simple as to be able to understand it through these caricatures. There are people who are committed to democracy, committed to human rights and freedoms in the West and in the Gulf. And there are people who are as we can see through their behaviour, committed to or implicated in authoritarianism and repression in the West and in the Gulf. Authoritarianism in the Gulf isn't a product of Gulf culture. It's a product of collusion between Western elites and Gulf elites against the wishes of many people in the Gulf. I think this is a really interesting area to explore. Is there any evidence then of again, I'm using the terms in inverted commas perhaps, but of more progressive elements in Qatar and in other Gulf states who have been squashed with the collusion of the West, but who might have generated or who might still generate a more progressive set of values than Qatar seems to at the moment. Yeah, I'll go on to some historical examples in a moment, but let's just stress the most fundamental point. 
these are human beings like everyone else and human beings around the world have consistently shown it's part of human nature almost to seek a degree of freedom and autonomy it's not to say we're all committed to democracy but you know it's a recurring theme in throughout human history people have been at the rough end of repression have sought to challenge it and sought to secure a degree of autonomy for themselves so we shouldn't be surprised to find this sort of thing in the gulf but remember because these regimes have been back to the hilt by the west for so long and strengthened to such a large degree and also become very wealthy to the extent that they can buy off opposition coupled with the fact that absolutely no dissent is tolerated free speech etc etc is treated as terrorism in these states it's difficult for people there to assert that nevertheless we do see resistance and you go through the history and you see it continuously particularly in bahrain where there's been a pretty large trade union movement connected to the sort of anti-colonial nationalism that we saw in the 50s and 60s in the middle east more generally there was challenges to the regime there challenges to the regime in saudi arabia as well in the 50s and 60s we fast forward to the present day to more recently anyway you see the huge uprising in bahrain in 2011 by proportion of population it was the biggest uprising in the so-called arab spring people may remember that in 2011 mass uprisings right across the middle east from the atlantic coast to the gulf people rising up against their regimes calling for democracy and better economic conditions which were put down by the regime in Bahrain and the other Gulf states wading in to help with the repression, which was carried out by security forces trained by the West and armed by the West. And in Qatar as well, you will find people trying to speak out and being jailed for it, you know, trying to make their voices heard. So, yeah, there's been repeated examples of resistance, of challenges from below throughout the history. The West need never have provided so many arms and spent so much effort propping up these regimes if there wasn't a threat to them. It's a recurring theme. Um, we shouldn't allow this kind of Orientalist, racist discourse to kid ourselves into thinking that these aren't human beings like the rest of us who would respond to tyranny in the same way as you and I would. What I find interesting about your insight, David, is that you're clearly not seeking to excuse Qatar, far from it, for the abuses that it visits upon its population. But I think it is valuable in terms of forcing us to assess, maybe reassess, what we are and how we operate. We are not always an honest broker in the world, and our Western values sometimes stop at our own borders and we can be pretty blind to the abuses that are carried out elsewhere if it's in our self-interest to do so the only thing i would say in response to that by way of a slight sort of let's sharpen this up it's not necessarily us who are doing it like i'm not doing it you're not doing it you know i mean mate, i don't know what you do outside of your media work but i'm pretty sure you don't sell major weapon systems to to saudi arabia and, and neither do i just specifically the people in the west who are doing this are corporate elites in the state the general population is quite separate from all of this and often when people are polled they're quite shocked i don't want to be pedantic about language but i do want to encourage listeners to think about it less in terms of us and them us in the west them in the east us british them qatari and start thinking about it in terms of not the vertical differences but the horizontal differences how there's a commonality and a collusion and a common project between the elites a governing layer in both the west and the east and to think about the extent to which 
we, from our point of view, it might well include people in Qatar more than it does people who govern our country and people who govern Qatar. I think that might be the way to look at it. And then we can get away from this kind of us and our Western values, them and their traditional values, and think about it more in terms of common humanity, number one, but also in terms of how power structures work in a kind of transnational way across borders, which is a legacy of empire, which is very much still with us. Not pedantic at all. Very important clarification. Thank you so much for your time. That's David Waring. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast, an insight I think you'll agree that you won't find anywhere else into the World Cup in Qatar. Really valuable, instructive to me, and I hope for you as well. If you want to support the work that we do on this podcast, then please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. It's our brilliant monthly newspaper, and subscriptions start from as little as three pounds a month. Get more details over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. For now, though, thanks very much indeed for listening. Enjoy the World Cup, if you can. I'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.